there's this wonderful moment, the live action cats, the, the, fe- the, that, nah, that's a fever dream oh. where it's in the middle of, you know, the, the railroad cats song and dance and they're in the like, you know, railroad. And then they just like zoom out and you can't see them anymore because they're cats, you know, so they're no longer like life size. They're just like, actually not person size. They're like just cat size. Just cat size. Yes. And the movie like zooms out and then like zooms back in. And it's like, I really wish that there was a moment in the Redwall book where you could like see that, where like there's like humans running around somewhere and they're just like looking at these like mice and rats and ferrets like poking each other with sticks. Welcome back, everyone, to Rosa and Rachel's Redwall Report. We have a very special guest for today um, here to talk about, I, I loved what you called it, Glenn, the lucid fever dream of a novel. Rachel, do you, would you like to introduce Glenn? Sure. Glenn and I have been friends since college. I don't think we knew that we were Redwall fans. I don't think this is a thing we knew about each other in college. We no, were I, friends for other reasons. I believe this came up a month ago. Yeah, we were doing the podcast. And uh, what we said we were going to do it, Glenn was like, I must speak about Sarmina. Awesome. So we're very thrilled to have you as our first guest. Yes. Well, Sarmina is really the protagonist of this book, Justice for My Queen. And the just general insanity of this world, like the implications he refuses at any point to look into about this world he has constructed, that I think is fascinating. There is one moment where Sarmina shows genuine levity to Fortunata, like in a private moment. So it's not like she's on display or anything or performing. She's looking out over the woodlands. And I think she says something about taking such joy in imagining. And I know this is not great um, for my favorite character. The children of these woodland creatures being put into the dungeons like they deserve. And she's okay. I want to talk about that moment. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that just great? And, and Fortunata's like, yes, it is. And I'm like, you guys have like a common understanding of the world here. I'm so fascinated by the camaraderie of villainy that is not really explored enough. So Fortunata comes across this fake fox. They have this saying that they say to each other. Yeah. Like this phrase of villainy that has this common understanding that we're both foxes and we're both bad. And I'm like, I want more of this. I want to understand this world. that he has built. These creatures are endemically evil. That's what you've written. What does a society that is built, organized, and run by inherently evil creatures look like? Because it must function. The premise is based on, like, this doesn't make sense if it doesn't function. Because this army comes out of somewhere, very well organized, takes these woodland creatures who are so sweet and so kind and don't take life or death seriously by surprise. So... At some point, the cats, the stoats, the rats, and the weasels built a world out there. What does that look like? Because in that world, there are people with genuine connection who feel genuine affection for one another. 
Otherwise, the Verdugo and Genevieve relationship doesn't make sense. For our families that have built, that have genuine love for one another. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, how do these species propagate? It's not just built on hate. Like, so that balance is so fascinating to me because this world that he has made just by the just displaying its opposite, by showing how these woodland creatures exist, you are implying that there is a far more complex existence out there <laughs> where this, these moral extremes must exist in tandem. And I, I think, I think part of why I glommed onto Sarmina so much is that she really gives us the best hint of that, of all the characters that I can remember villains on how that sort of functioned, because she is written with three dimensions. Like Clooney is all evil. The things he takes joy in are all destructive things. Yeah. She enjoys a good meal. She enjoys being a cat. She's a great archer. Cause she has this shot where she's like getting the bow underneath here and she gets Martin in the side in an instant. So she has worked for a long time on that skill, which in, in, implies a certain amount of passion in learning how to do that. She has thought about how to organize a hierarchical structure, which also takes work and contemplation. And on alongside of that, she has a deep fear of water. She hates babies and she loves to torture. Like, like how does that person come into the world? Mm-hmm. So my counterpoint on Sarmina was there are like a couple moments reading it where I felt like kind of triggered, right? Like for Donald Trump, <laughs> It's like Clooney is a military commander and he's just sort of like cartoonishly evil, but Sarmina is governing. And, and then like the things she plans about that, like when you're reading a children's book in the nineties, you're like, and you're in, you know, Britain or the U S or whatever. You're like, oh, wow. Ha, that's so evil. And then we just lived through a government that does things like separate families and put children in cages and tax poor people so that rich people can have more. And like, and then I think also just the bet that she's a cat, so she's blonde. Like, I always imagine her as like a yellow <laughs> wild cat. So, like, because Ginger Beer is um, described as blonde, right? And in, in Red right. So, yeah, so it just made me be like, oh, she actually, like, and she's, like, insane and unpredictable. And sometimes she promotes people because they're actually skilled, and sometimes she does it because they're nice to her really on on edge when I was reading. I was like, yeah, she needs to go. Well, and then she also like then also- uses, uses people and then betrays them, right? right? You know, the, with Bane, right? She's like, oh, here, you know, here I can use you until I can get everything I need from you. And then I'm going to like throw, throw you to the eagle, right? Or, uh- there is a moment that genuinely broke my heart at the end of this book. So she has this, the last captain that she promotes, this rag character who is genuinely loyal to her. Yeah. And, you know, is like not a great guy, but seems to really like he thinks she's crazy, but seems to li- like her on a certain level. They, they vibe in a way that feels <laughs> real when they're having this conversation about the traps. She's like, I finally understand you. And she's like, I'm so glad somebody here is finally picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> and then they are together at the end when the castle is falling apart and she abandons him. Yeah. Yep. And I had this weird feeling where I felt so bad for him. And I, and I knew Brian Jakes did not intend me to do that because he makes a joke about his death a second later. I'm like, 
poor, poor guy. You know, you were trying to do a good job for her. Now you had some serious limitations and that you were scared of the dark and you didn't go into the basement and investigate the sounds of the water that she did hear. She wasn't crazy. There was water happening. If you had done your job, this would have been prevented. But Rachel, you're right. This is what is so fascinating about this book because it doesn't have like just an arriving warlord or an emerging threat. The threat is already present and the threat has a structure. The threat is built into the system here. Like, how is it that this has been allowed to go on for so long that Verdugo has been king of this place and now Sarmina is queen of this place? How many mice have lived and died in this oppressive structure? How many other injustices that Gingivir must have been a part of have gone on before this book even started? You know, it's like how uh, everybody was going crazy for what was her face? Tiffany Trump. Huh. Just because she was mildly critical of the president and everybody is looking for somebody in a bad structure that they can glom onto and point to its good. But by benefiting from that power structure, must take a fair account and sacrifice in some way themselves to atone for it. And we don't see that. What we do see, and it does seem like it's, it's what every narrative that people write when they make like a joke about Putin and Trump having a love affair or Trump ending up being murdered somewhere is like this revenge fantasy uh, against Sarmina that doesn't, I think, really address the problems. Mm -hmm. Because whatever created Sarmina, whatever society that is, that we don't really get a glimpse of, that must still exist out there. And that keeps showing up. Like these rats, these pirate rats that come out from across the sea, these invading forces. Like, what is out there? Yeah. Never explained. <laughs> like how, like, I mean, that's the thing that is so funny about like the North here, right? Like if it's so bad, if you're living in caves your entire life and like most of your life is just fighting against like rats who are coming and invading, why are you still there? You know, why, why do we still live here? Because we have what? Bagels. <laughs> Bagels in my Canada. I'm not getting at this, but no, I mean, that's, that's true. And also like, why can't we have some mice villains? Like, you know, are they all just, why does it always have to be like, you know, species versus species? Can't there be like bad otters or like not so neat, like hedgehogs? I feel like hedgehogs could be pretty evil. Yeah. Cause I mean, there are a couple of tricky hedgehogs. Yeah. Cause you would see in like a, a human version of this, there would be like, let's say Redwall, for example. The main character in that, what's his name? Matthias. Matthias. Matthias, would, there would be like some rival of Matthias's for like a romantic affection or for his station in this abbey who would get jealous of his success or the fact that he is chosen by Martin for this mystical quest to find his sword or whatever and would be like flirting with joining the bad guys. There'd be something like that. There would be some sort of inner treachery that was happening here. I mean, am I wrong? Or is this whole book just based on like a petty grievance? He shows up somewhere. He doesn't know anybody. He immediately gets uh, kidnapped by Sarmina, a queen of the thousand eyes, who so relatable, is afraid of water, is suffering some sort of mental illness. This poor girl gets treatment. Constantly by ever. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want to know how the succession plan was drawn up. How did Verdugo <laughs> choose 
Gingevere instead of her. Like she is the one who knows how to command forces. She's not a, like what drove me crazy is she's been constantly being gaslit because the mice, the squirrels are calling her a coward at every point. She is leading her army. At no point is she like behind. I remember Clooney was constantly yeah, like, like leaping away, afraid in the back. She is charging with her forces. She is, you know, when she's not being crazy, generally pretty supportive of people who prove to be effective. Yeah, she has like a organized army and she promotes people. Right, like, who, who achieve and who accomplish and yeah. proven to be substantive. She has this friendship with uh, Fortunata, <laughs> at, 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 which I, at, and I get, again, I must support the death of the author because Brian Jakes has heard this line, like, why would I care about this dead fox? But then immediately the next fox she meets, she replaces her and makes him this equal in her hierarchical structure until he turns out to be plotting against her and he she kind of had a thing for bane i think she liked to scarf she had a thing for foxes she definitely had a thing for fortunata because she clearly has a thing for fortunata she then clearly i think sublimates this thing that she had for fortunata and very next fox she runs into uh <laughs> it's sad you know because <laughs> She was not able to express this thing. So she's, she basically just keeps her around after she's served her purpose of poisoning her dad, which, what was that relationship like? I have so many questions about that. We meet him once and people do this weird thing where they're like, at least under Rodogo, he didn't treat us like this. So the implication is that Sarmina is so much worse. I don't see that. Mm -hmm. It feels like sexism to me. Because regularly, men are allowed to act insane in this book. You have who... For the fighter, yeah. What the hell? I mean, so he's screaming at people. He's in a forge near all these chemicals or something that I think may have done something to his brain. Because he gets taunted out into the open, takes all of his friends and is like, we're going to die tonight. Takes them out onto this beach against... I mean, it's the implication seems to be hundreds of rats. Hadn't been mentioned before. Why? Who are these people? Yeah. Where, where did they come from? Why are you so obsessed with killing these people? You just came from a whole, your family is over here, somewhere else, embroiled in some other political struggle that you could assist with. Instead of doing that, you have chosen to, to kill yourself with this rat I don't think you really know. No. And then you're like, hey, Martin, tell my daughter I was a badass warrior. Martin should be like, no, you come with me and tell her yourself. We have this whole, didn't I just tell you about the cat that we're fighting your land, this place you came from with people ostensibly you care about? Shouldn't you come with us? So Bor the fighter gets to have a death wish. Martin gets to indiscriminately kill, but... Seems like Sarmina is condemned simply because she has the stereotypical attributes of a cat. She's afraid of water. At one point, she shreds a rug to pieces for fun, likes to toy with her, what ostensibly should be her food. Mm -hmm. Why isn't she eating these mice? And it, so it has this weird effect where there's only one character really in this book who has been written like a three-dimensional character, and that is Sarmina, <laughs> who has flaws. I mean, obvious glaring flaws who has genuine things that she seems to enjoy, these cat attributes, who has something that she wants to accomplish that makes sense. She has 
murdered her father, put her brother in the dungeon and wants to maintain this kingdom that she has built and really probably should have just inherited anyway, given that she is a competent administrator. She's the only character who has a clear demarcation between business and not like pleasure. So she's never joking around with these rats when it is something like when there is actually something serious going on. She's never laughing about the war. Now she does lose her mind at some point, And that does that cause these areas to blend for her because she's literally having a psychotic episode. Yeah. But yeah, up until that point, if they're fighting, she's serious. If they're not, then she might allow herself space for levity. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is what condemns her. Would it also be the throwing children into prison and like <laughs> stealing food from the woodlanders? Well, because they are not paying their taxes. <laughs> They're not paying their the economy could support <laughs> allowing her soldiers to like drag people out of their homes and beat. So the implication is that Verdugo was also doing this to a certain extent and they were fine right. with it. So well, they was... were, well, they were resisting, right? And Right. Bella tried to do it by herself when she was younger and they couldn't quite do it. And then for some reason, I guess Berdaga being like old and frail allowed for there to be more cracks for them to finally defeat them. Yeah. Right. So well, they, they did exist in some sort of like symbiosis, right? That Berdaga didn't take. Well, I think in the same way that like, I mean, you know, Donald Trump was our president. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not happy about it. Speaking of symbiosis, it's very clear that we are supposed to root for the Woodlanders. They are the, you know, Democrats, resistance, whatever, in this scenario. Obviously, they are the heroes of the story. They're the good guys. And it's not like Sarmina isn't evil, but here is where kind of the um, metaphor breaks down a little, because there's something really strange going on with the Woodlanders in this book. What is, what is that? Where Sarmina is basically cajoling the woodland creatures. She's like, before I am finished with moss flower, every creature defies me will wish its mother had never given birth to it. The crying and the dying will be loud and long. Now let me hear you laugh at that. And Fortunata leapt forward. The vixen was thinking of ingratiating herself with her queen by adding a few words to the speech. Thus speaks the mighty Sarmina, ruler of all moss flower. And she runs into Brog, the person ends up being the captain. And they have like this weird comical moment. And the otter's laughter was mingled with the chuckling of squirrels. So this has happened immediately after she has released a creature on these otters, trying to have them all be eaten and killed. There's been an intense, violent clash where people have died. So Sarmina's crazy. She's evil. She's promising that the crying and the dying will be loud and long. I don't support that as a policy, but I... <laughs> At least she is treating the moment that has just happened with the appropriate weight. I find the actions of these otters and squirrels to be psychotic. Like, watched, like people you know have just died. Like, two of the otters moments ago were just eaten by this gloomer thing. They didn't make it out of this, like... The, the lady otter has been swimming and she told them, oh, I don't know, they died. And they say, congratulations, good job for telling us that. So you're dealing with the weight of having lost these people who were very important to you. The otter's laughter was mingled with the chuckling of the squirrels. And it's just a throwaway line, but I think the implications of it, if you're reading this as an adult, are truly disturbing. 
And then at the end of the very next chapter, Sarmina is just sort of out alone on the parade grounds. And nobody else is present in this. In a short time, Sarmina stood alone on the empty parade ground, staring at a single fallen spear. Whoever had dropped it would be far too scared to come back and retrieve it. She stooped and picked up the weapon as something whooshed by close overhead. Arguably, as big and powerful as she was, Sarmina did not wait around to challenge the eagle. Taking a swift run, she vaulted through a ground floor window, using the spear shaft as a pole. Peering out, she saw Argulo circle away to his perch, well out of arrow range. The wildcat queen was glad that no one had witnessed her retreat. Now, she's fleeing something that is more powerful than her. She's displaying this incredible amount of athleticism. And then we're getting a private inner thought that she's glad nobody witnessed her retreat. And it's, I feel like when you are getting into the head of somebody, and then you're setting them opposed people that you never really get the inner thoughts of, like these otters and these squirrels. You naturally are just more inclined to empathize with that person. And he's, he's done something to me, this Brian Jakes, where he is making me resent these otters. And I like, because they're not taking this seriously. And they're not taking it seriously. I feel like costs them so much in terms of like, the lives that are lost on their end. And it makes me want to shake one of them and scream and say, this woman you are opposed against, she is crazy. She is driven. And the only thing that she cares about is seeing each and one of you die painfully and slowly. And like, that's not a great thing, but at least I get where she's coming from. To not understand where these people are coming from and then see them act in such a way is so, it's like, they're all children. They're all written like children, but they're fighting an, an adult. And I, I think I have this, this weird perspective. And at this point in the book, it almost feels like we have come at this point in this story where Sarmina and this cat family have tried to be reasonable with these people. I know that's not probably what happened, but it feels like I am asking you, you are the people who know how to farm. We are the people who know how to be a militaristic force. There could be some sort of symbiotic relationship here where we have an understanding. Perhaps the way that we negotiated that understanding wasn't necessarily fair to you. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to talk about that, but at no point are the woodland creatures willing to have any discussion except for Sarmina, you're a coward, you must die. And that simply doesn't comport with the facts of what we're looking at here. Because what we're looking at here is an incredibly skilled military commander who leads her forces from the front, unlike Donald Trump, who would never do that, and has considerable abilities that must have been developed with hard work, something Donald Trump has not done a day in his life. Mm. And they're not meeting her on that ground. Mm. Now, again, she is also crazy and a bloodthirsty cat, but I can't help but see character and respect all the work that that character has done and get frustrated when she's not taken seriously. We get a lot of information about the Woodlanders and their motivations, but... I feel like there are whole unwritten swaths of this book that explore her character and how murdering her father has affected her and how imprisoning her, bro her brother has affected her. Because clearly what's happening at the end of the book is like this burden of guilt. Mm -hmm. But at no point does the book 
bother to tell us that. But we did need five chapters of Bane, so. <laughs> we needed a whole lot more of Bane or we needed no Bane at all. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> there's like a very specific, you know, army structure in this book. Right. is like in Redwall where it's just kind of like warlords and bands. And then yeah. Metameo, it's just kind of a group of slavers. So like what, you know, there's obviously like, you know, do they go to a leadership academy? Like what is... Who is doing all of this? Who's suggesting all of this? And I was, because who taught Sarmina how to coach? So, you know, it, when you're, when you're a, a manager in an organization and you're trying to develop your staff, you'll have like a coaching session where you work on a specific skill. At some point, she sits down, brag, and has like a conversation where she's like, so, I, I mean, I think you have the nastiness that I need in a captain. But what I'm looking for is a forward thinker. So before you rush out there, I, I think a good thing for you might be to sit down and make a plan, take inventory of our traps, and then go out there and lay them. Like, that's not something that you just have an instinct to do. At some point, Verdugo would have had to tell her to do this. So were they drilling? Like, did they come upon a community of stoats, weasels, and rats? <laughs> and like have a, a draft day or sit out there with a table, say, join our cat army. And with a whiteboard. <laughs> like talk about the benefits and everything. Bring your whole family. I promise nothing will happen to them. There's so much work that would have had to go into establishing this army before they even came to this castle. And then he builds a castle. Well, the castle was there. Was the castle there already? Yeah. They just fixed it up. So they were just kind of like marching and marauding through wherever they could. And then they found uh, the castle okay. and decided to stay in it. Yeah. And so they have this architectural landmark that must have been built hundreds of years ago by God knows what. Humans? Who knows? Never uh, explained. Could never explained. Yeah. Just like the war that somehow happens in, in Redwall that is also never talked about. But yeah. Really traumatic for everyone. Right. There's like this. Gabriel Garcia Marquez book that's happening way above everybody's heads. <laughs> like, I think we're, it's, it's been, you know, I, I joked about this when I was in high school, but, you know, with the play Antigone, you know, when I read it, you know, in 2004, 2005, something like oh, that, yeah. I would like, you know, this is, this is a play about like a religious extremist who's like destroying her her country for her own beliefs you know when my mom read it as like second wave feminist and you know marxist and all of that she was like no 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 she's a freedom fighter she's you know someone who is like really you know standing up to the power of the state to like say you know to do the right thing and it's just such an interesting like looking back on this book now as adults as people who have been steeped in the tradition it's just a much different experience reading it but it's so funny that you say that because I was I read this book and thought about Oedipus Rex because <laughs> I, I kept thinking like oh, no. ultimately this book is about you know somebody who is trapped by this this destiny that has been set by their family mm -hmm. and they're condemned for it and their tragic flaw seems to be that they are who they are mm -hmm. uh, and then have to pay that price and you know she doesn't get an Oedipus at Kelowna she doesn't get to wander off into the forest and then die. Yeah, it's right. I mean, it's it's weird because there are these characters that are Shakespearean and it's like they're being opposed against a sea of fools. And we're supposed to empathize solely with the fools. But I am drawn to somebody with depth. I think I don't think I can help but be drawn to that person. Yeah. And that it's just it's this weird fundamental imbalance, you know, that it would make more sense if 
Martin were affected by his imprisonment mm -hmm. in some way that was tangible. You could see that happening, somebody being in prison for months, affecting them physically or psychologically. Like if there was a toll that was taken by the things that Sermina had done to him, that would explain the vehemence with which he's hunting her down. Mm -hmm. But it seems like things happen to him and he's fine. Mm -hmm. He's so hungry, but he's not. Right. Yeah. You know, Sarmina has murdered her father and is haunted by nightmares and this increasing phobia of water. There's a weight to the things that she has done that costs her. And, it, and that just makes her just an inherently more fascinating character. And I don't know, I, and I think to answer Rachel's question more fully, like, are there more villains that have that cost added to them that feel like even if the author isn't being explicit about it, the evil actions that they have done are taking a toll yeah. on Because that's the undertone here, and that's what makes this book so fascinating. At least to me. Yeah. Uh, and this is a book for children. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this special episode discussing Sarmina. On our next episode, we dig into whether Martin is a war criminal and who gets to be sentient. That's it for now. Stay safe and we'll see you in a hop, skip, and a jump.